a battle over the border. America is at a breaking point with record levels of illegal immigration. The desperate and the dangerous. They're being abused by the cartels. They're drowning in the Rio Grande. And the deal making. Closer than we have been, but this is a very difficult issue. A call for heads to roll. You can honorably resign or we are going to impeach you. A decades-old dilemma, an answer in reach. Why won't lawmakers do it? The Dignity Act. It ends illegal immigration once and for all. The Congresswoman behind it all, right here, live. Hello, Florida! Ouster Eve. We're taking the appropriate action from the party to, to move on. Florida Republicans work to turn the page on their leader's sex scandal against his will. He needs to move on. He needs to resign. A behind-the-scenes look at what's to come live. What were they thanking you for? I, I have no idea. The scrutiny, the news stories. It's embarrassing uh, of what's going on in Miami. It's one controversy after another. Miami's mayor and City Hall itself under the toughest scrutiny in decades. Please not record this. Oh, oh, whoa. The journalists on the beat and taking heat are here to break it down. The big stories of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. Hello, hello. I'm Glenna Milberg. One of the biggest national stories this first week of the year hits right home in South Florida. The decades-old unsolved border and immigration crisis that blew up again this week. As numbers of crossings surge again, as election year campaigning ramps up, demands for border security could stall emergency funding for Ukraine and Israel. A House committee prepares to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary for breach of duty and the latest lawmaker visit to the border included 64 House Republicans and the Speaker demanding the kind of strict hardline policies and mass deportations that Democrats and anti-immigrant call anti-immigrant and the president promised to veto. In the middle of all this, a detailed bipartisan bill that addresses border security and a plan for those undocumented living, working, paying taxes here for years. It's called the Dignity Act, and it's filed for the second time by Congresswoman Maria Salazar, Republican from Miami and a Democrat co-sponsor from El Paso. Welcome to the program, Maria Salazar. Great to have you. Of course, wonderful to be with you, Glenna. Happy New Year to you. I guess it's still not too late to yeah. say that. I want to talk about nope. the Dignity Act. In the context yeah. now, though, um, this, this context this week that we're in right now, it is yeah. a national security plan. It is an immigrant advocate plan. It has everything that everyone is asking for. Why isn't it moving? Oh, my God, what a great question, and what a mess we're in. Well, because I think both parties need to understand that they have to come to the table. We are in a divided, very divided government, and you need a bipartisan solution if we're going to solve what everyone knows by now. It's the number one crisis we're facing in this country. And a lot of talk, a lot of talk. You know, there are no saints in Washington. A lot of talks from both parties, but I'm the only one who has presented a coherent 
solution, a bipartisan one, like you said, it's called the Dignity Act. And it does two things, basically two things. It seals the border because we cannot have the mess that we're saying. Six million illegals since President Biden arrived in the White House. Number one, seals the border. Number two, it looks bad and it looks back and it gives dignity, not amnesty, not citizenship to those people who have been here for more than five years working, paying taxes, and contributing to our economy. That's it. What are we going to do with the illegals? Let's give them dignity. You know, I watched the, uh, you're on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the House. I watched a recent committee meeting where you were quizzing yep. some immigration experts on what sounded like some of the ideas that you might want to put forth. And one of those things, you know, I want to address, this is such a, to your point, such a complicated moving a lot of parts to immigration and to the border, but it specifically um, focused on what a lot of people call catch and release, people who are asylum seekers who are paroled into the country uh, and, and have to wait years with sort of in limbo for any kind of... Um, yeah, but we solved that. Right. We solved so, it. So you know how? It? With you, you, humanitarian campuses. That's what I wanted to because ask you about, of, because you mentioned me. these humanitarian centers. Campuses. And and yeah, I want to I want I want to air sort of that idea because it it sounded like you know the experts that you were talking about or talking to were kind of hedging yeah it's a great idea but um, and I am I'm guessing they're thinking of bureaucracy and politics but flesh that out for us what does that practically look like? Sure. Glenna, the problem that we have is that the asylum system is being gamed because there is no other way to come into the country except unless you wait years because the legal immigration system is also broken. But now let's go to what you're telling me. So if you come to the United States and you're a Pepe Perez and you say that I am claiming asylum, the laws in the United States give you due process. We're going to give you the due process in 60 days. You are welcomed into five humanitarian centers along the border to thousand miles you go into five and then you can stay there for 60 days with your family we're not going to be dividing anybody you get mental health you get all types of services and in 60 days a judge has to adjudicate and says and, and determine if you're going to be able to be welcomed into the country with an asylum granted asylum or you have to go back home no one disappears into the country and has to wait nine years for the first court appearance it's over catch and release is over and the asylum system is not going to be gained anymore and that's part of the larger picture is because the immigration system right now is literally crumbling under the numbers of people who are in the system as we speak. So you've got what's happening now, you've got border security. Democrats say the border is secure. We have seen that is absolutely not the case. Republicans are saying the border is wide open, respectfully. That is not the case. But there actually is a border security problem that we're seeing flesh out as people are, there's you know the drugs and the cartels that a lot of people point to, which is, is a minuscule but very dangerous component of border crossers, traffickers, uh, potential terrorists. So I want to I want to take a look at the security portion of this. And the president okay. this week looked kind of over his shoulder as, as reporters were asking questions and, and said, I just need the funding for the border. Um, so it is in this kind of partisan ping pong. The funding for the border is being hashed out right now between senators and the administration. But in the Dignity Act that that I'm, I'm hoping, I, we don't do advocacy journalism 
here, but if you read that act, that certainly seems to Could. be a start to, to a lot of problems. Take us through wow. what that. Wow! Thank you, thank <laughs> you for that plug. Thanks. What the component <laughs> is? Well, I'm going to challenge you on some of them too. But we'll take us through the component of how to secure the border. Period. The end. Non-porously. Hey, listen. The technology is out there. I have interviewed some of those folks that own companies in the private sector that they have come up with technology. I'm not an expert, but I do know that we need drones. The drones are there. We need towers, long, long, tall towers with infrared cameras. I'm not an expert. I know it's there. We need levees. We need structures. It doesn't matter. The technology is out there. The private sector has provided. The only thing we need to do as elected officials is buy them and install it and political willingness to do that like the Israelis do. I mean, it's not it's nothing. It's nothing out of the ordinary. So we seal the border. And in those ports of entry that we need to uh, keep open, of course, for trade and for those who are want to come in. Then we have the humanitarian centers and we increase and we pay better border patrol, border security. If this is not rocket science, it's just political willingness. And the, the problem is that the Republicans want to do that, which I know that we need to seal the border, which is what HR2, which is the only law that has passed, is border security. But then the Dems say, no, 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 not only border security, we need something else, which is dignity, of course. Let's give dignity to those who have been here, around 10 million illegals who are undocumented, who have helped the economy, have American children, want to go home for Christmas or bury their mom, uh, be able to pay taxes, no government funding, no government help. You pay for your own health insurance. On top of that, you pay $1,000 a year, and then you are in the dignity status. What do you think about that? And well, and it that's, you know, I can't answer that at the moment, but that is actually what a lot of what we've heard reporting is a lot of uh, businesses, a lot of agricultural entities, a lot of small businesses um, are, are advocating for the work construction, right? Advocating for the workforce. I, I want to talk about HR2 a, a little more deeply, too, in our next segment. But sure. um, so I, let's do that. Let's take a break, a commercial break. HR2, to your point, has passed the House. You want uh, me to stay longer? Yes, hey, I do. Is I that okay? That you had enough. Oh, six, seven <laughs> okay, more minutes. Sure. Is that good? Okay. Stay tuned. Hey, we'll be... make it 14. <laughs> I love to be talking to my people and my I remember that I used to do this and I miss it. Uh, do you? <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we can talk about that one day. Hard. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned. We will be right back with the Congresswoman in a couple of minutes. back with Miami oh, Congresswoman Maria Salazar. You're on camera, back on camera where you used to be. <laughs> um, so I want to, Congresswoman, you mentioned HR2. Uh, that is the, the speaker actually at the border brought that up. That is uh, something yeah. he's very much behind. That was a bill that passed with complete Republican support, zero Democrats. Yeah. It is a border security bill. Uh, yeah. And also, in context, it's the kind of hardline bill that brings back some of the Trump-era components to immigration uh, that some immigration advocates call cruel. Um, it does things, more restrictions on people seeking asylums, more deportations. Uh, you voted for that. 
along with sponsoring what is a much more bipartisan, comprehensive bill, weigh, weigh in on the differences between what you voted for in H.R. 2 and what you think might be a more bipartisan compromise that could pass the Senate. That's a great question. H.R. 2 is the, is the um, border security produced by the Republican House of Representatives. And basically what it says is that you cannot be gaming the system anymore. You meaning whomever wants to come in and does not have a, a legal status or a real claim for asylum. You, you need, in order for you to come to the United States, you need to have a, a real true case for asylum. And HR2, what it does is that it basically seals the border. It just creates order at the border. And that is fine because everyone, including the Hispanic community, we don't want to see six million illegals. God knows who those people are. Well, I let me let me just let me just clarify this six million border crossings, an eye popping number and an absolutely an unprecedented record. Unacceptable. But but, but the vast majority of those were not illegals. They were people seeking asylum, which is completely legal to do. And I just wanted to clarify that. And that's correct. But the problem is that out of that one, chances are that only 20 or 30 percent of those people who came in and claimed for asylum have merits. And we know that. That's why most of them do not go back to, uh, to uh, the court system. They don't show up in their court day. You know, that's why we have probably 10, 12 million undocumented whom I would like to give dignity to. So basically going back to HR2, HR2 is a very good bill. It could be tweaked here and there, but it misses or it lacks what the Dems want, which is the dignity part. Let's talk to the DACA, to the Dreamers, to the people who have TPS, to those people who have been here and we will not have food by Friday if they are not on our fields or in construction or in agriculture or in farming or in dairies or in roofing you know that the problem is with the dignity bill is that my bill is not only an immigration reform it's a national security because it seals the border and on top of that it's a it's an economic bill because you know very well that the business sector that's why dignity has been sponsored by the united states chamber of commerce because yeah. you have the private sector say hey i need hands i need hands please yeah. where do i and then we cannot grow as a country and continue being the most important country economically speaking in the world if we don't have growth and we can do, if you don't have hands we don't have growth yeah i mean so i think everybody already also bipartisan is that. yeah and everybody is behind legal immigration that's that's a bipartisan thing too so let me ask you something that um you know may be difficult to answer with with all of this said because this is an election year and immigration and border security are absolutely partisan flashpoints. Do you yeah. think that people don't want to solve this at all this year so they can use it for their campaign? Is that too harsh? Well, you know, look, I'm gonna go back 30 years ago and I always, you know that I'm very critical of the Democratic Party because the Democrats have been always announcing that they are the minority party. And they have been promising people like in my, in, people in my minority a community, the Hispanics, that we're going to have an immigration reform law if you vote for me. And that happened with Obama and that happened with Biden. So I think it's time for the GOP to step up and say, you know what, guys? 
we're going to solve the problem. And that's why me, Maria Salazar, proud representative of District 27, 78% of my district is Hispanic American. So why don't we do something and fix the problem? Let's stop talking. So we have, let's do something. we have a 2.0 on the table. This is the second iteration of the Dignity Act. Two years ago, next month, almost exactly two years ago, um, you filed the first version. It was referred to 12 committees. It never got a hearing. Fast forward, now we have 2.0. It's referred to the same 12 committees. It is yet to be scheduled for a hearing. How yep. are you going to maneuver this? Because I have a, this time around, I have a co-sponsor. As I said at the beginning, if we are in a very divided government, you need a bipartisan bill in order to solve anything. And I do have a co-sponsor, Veronica Escobar, who is a liberal Mexican-American from El Paso, Texas. So very far away from my position in Miami, conservative Republican or Republican, but we have become very good friends because we're both Americans and we want to solve the problem. And she understood for the first time that her party, the Democrats, need to agree that we have to seal the border. And we, the Republicans, need to understand that we got to give dignity to those who are here, who have been here for 10 or 15 or 30 years, and give them dignity so they can come out of the shadows, work the business, work and help the business sector, become hands, continue picking the jalapeno peppers or the tomatoes or the oranges. And then we're going to have, not only are we going to fix in Social Security, because all those people will start contributing legally to Social Security. We're going to have more taxes in the Treasury, and we will know everyone who lives in the United States. No wow, one will be in the shadows. This, this sounds like a story waiting to be written. We'll do Social Security maybe in another segment at another point. Uh, Maria Salazar, yeah, Congresswoman from Miami. Ten yeah. Ten more million people contributing to Social Security. What do you think is going to do that to that fund? So listen, we're going to watch. We're watching this bill, and it would be great to have immigration you, and border Anna. security this session really solved in our lifetime. And uh, please yes. do keep in touch. Of course, may the Lord guide us, and thank you, and long live the United States, and thank you for the opportunity. Of course, thanks. All right, up next, what may be ouster eve for the head of Florida's Republican Party chair at the center of a sex scandal, the man replacing him at the moment, he's with us live next. Scandals are old news in politics, but at the moment, the chair of the Republican Party of Florida is at the center of one that also involves criminal allegations of rape, which he denies. Even so, as a big election year begins, Christian Ziegler has been stripped of his power and his salary, and tomorrow may fate face a vote to replace him. The party's vice chair is among those running for that position. That would be Evan Power, now serving as interim. He also chairs the Leon County Republican Party in Tallahassee. Evan Power right here with us live today. Good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. So take us through kind of behind the scenes, which I know is pretty private, but hey, do what you can. Take <laughs> us behind the scenes of how this intended ouster happened. Christian Ziegler uh, has been, he's not even charged. He denies criminal allegations. So far what we have is his personal sex life. Take us through the, the decision-making process that the party went to do what you're doing. So we learned about it like everybody else did through the, through the press. 
And from then, um, you know, many of our elected leaders asked for him to step aside so we could move the party forward. Um, he has refused to do that. But what we see and the board unanimously voted was it's time for some new leadership at the top of the party because the 2024 election is so important that we just need to move the party forward and he can work out those issues on his own, um, not as the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. So so it's an image thing and it's taking sort of stealing the oxygen out of the room kind of process. Would that be? Yeah, when you're the leader of a, of a, a Republican Party, you need to be able to lead and not have those distractions. It's a lot different than being an elected official. You're you're an administrative job, um, job trying to get things done, and, and he's just in a place where he needs to spend time working through those personal issues that he has rather than trying to run the party also. You know, he's been he's been the chair since not even a year, right? It's been about nine, ten months. I mean, in Florida, the Republican Party's done pretty well this year, bucking national trends um, in, the, in the midterms. It was pretty much a red wave in one state while a blue wave took over the rest of the country. And and I remember Ziegler talking about that and saying, kind of crediting the get out the vote effort and the targeted registrations that the state party was doing. So I, I want to kind of prognosticate a little bit this year, uh, not midterms, but a presidential election. Um, abortion in Florida may be on the ballot, it looks like. Uh, getting out the vote this time may be um, not more difficult for you, but you may be facing a much bigger blue wave this November than you did in the midterms. Talk about that and the plans for that a little bit. Well, I think what Florida has become is a model for the nation, both as a Republican Party and as a conservative uh, kind of think tank of things that we're passing. So I think what we, we need to do is make sure we get our grassroots motivated to turn out the vote. That's what the Republican Party of Florida has done historically. It's what we're prepared to do again, and that's why we're taking actions quickly to move on, get our grassroots fired up, turning out voters. And when we do that, we're going to win Florida by larger and larger margins every cycle. Tell me a little bit, detail for me what the, that platform is, because the what people call the culture war platform, we have abortion restrictions uh, recently passed, even still in the courts waiting, but restrictions passed nonetheless. We have guardrails for education when it comes to sex education, uh, race education. So there are a lot of those kind of issues that really fueled a lot of what we've seen in the last couple of years, Republican voting. Is, is that the kind of thing you're taking with you into November, or is the platform a bit different or broader? No, I think that is the platform that wins for us. People are really tired of government telling them everything they need to do and not letting parents make decisions. So we're, we've been empowering parents, we've been empowering voters to make choices on their own, not having the government necessarily make those choices for them. And I think that that, that is a policy that works. Um, you know, it, it came up during COVID when people saw what was being taught in their schools and they were like, we're, we're not on board with this. And so what the platform is, um, the media loves to call it culture wars, we call it common sense. So that's kind of, we're gonna keep moving that ball forward and it works, obviously, we we won the midterms by a large margin, and and the Democratic Party tried to use those same issues against this last cycle, the abortion and, and um, parental choice, and, and they were not successful in doing so. All right. I am not here to defend the media by any means, but let me just say that the culture wars was not a media-invented thing. It's We're talking about culture. And common sense means may mean different things to different people. So common sense living is, uh, is certainly sometimes different to different people. But, but that said, um, I just want to drill down a little bit on you brought up the abortion issue um, and making choices and exactly what may be on the ballot in November if the Supreme Court 
uh, passes muster, says it passes muster, is that there will be a choice for people who feel like they need to terminate pregnancies in some ways, in some respects. That is not allowed right now under Florida law. Would, would that come under what you consider choice? No, we're protecting life in, in, in all its forms, and I think it's a simple proposition is that we're going to protect life, and I think the Supreme Court's going to take up that issue. We'll see if it makes the ballot. Uh, Democrats see it as a silver bullet, but as we saw, they ran on that last cycle, and we won overwhelmingly here in Florida. I think people uh, understand what the issues are, and we're going to continue to win Florida by turning out our Republican voters that are just growing day by day here. So let, let me take you through, um, at the beginning of our interview, we talked about what you're doing as far as um, voting to, or what will likely be a vote to uh, end Christian Ziegler's tenure as chair, is about letting him do his own problem solving, uh, taking the oxygen out of the room, focusing on what's important and not on what is a sex scandal at the moment. Um, and then, you know, sort of take me through that kind of issue where personally Republicans are caught up and Democrats too, but in this case we're talking about Republicans caught up in personal scandal um, and then and then going in and using platforms of morality and um, and religion and, and sometimes that's cognitive dissidence to voters and, and I wonder if you would take us through that. Well, I think that's the, the political problem that, that Chairman Ziegler faces in leading the party moving forward is because they see him as not being as leading on one way and living his life a different way. And I think you know for, when you lead an organization like like the party, you have to you have to hold yourself to a standard so that you can advocate for these ideas and push forward. And when you become the story and you become a distraction, it's not good for the organization. Because my, my theory has always been that if if I was chairman of the Republican Party of Florida, we went through a whole cycle and we won every race and no one knew who I was, I would be doing a great job as chairman. When you become the story, you become a distraction. And that, I think, is, is the reason we're going to make a move to, to change chairman at the moment. Understood. Let me uh, switch gears a little bit. Is the state party backing a candidate for president? We are not. We're, we're a, a turnout organization, as you mentioned earlier. So our focus is getting the turn out up operation off the ground and then turning it over to whoever the nominee will be in a couple months. So what do you make of this week? The Miami-Dade Republican Party endorsed Donald Trump in a straw vote, a straw ballot. What do you make of that? I think th these are all things we do to, to um, engage our grassroots. I think straw polls have traditionally had a place in our grassroots, and they and they do that and, and indicate their preferences. But know at the end of the day that we're going to have a turnout operation ready to go like we did in 2020 and 2016. So we're going to be ready to go as the Republican Party of Florida for whoever the nominee is. Evan Power, great to have you on the program today. appreciate your time on this Sunday. All right, thank you. Take care. All right, drama, dysfunction, and possibly worse at Miami City Hall is under the microscope. The journalists who put it there and who are now facing some backlash, they're all here live next. A few things have contributed to fresh scrutiny on Miami city government where drama, dysfunction and evidence of corruption can sometimes seem like part of the DNA, where staffers stay silent and reap benefits or speak out and pay consequences. A civil jury, for instance, found one commissioner weaponized city government against rivals. 
Prosecutors charge another, now former commissioner, with corruption-related crimes. And since Mayor Francis Suarez's ill-fated run for U.S. president, a slow drip of unanswered questions about how his net worth exponentially increased, about his travel and activities at public cost, and his absence at City Hall. The reason you know about any of this is because news reporters work to unearth and document and make the people who elected them aware, and in this case, not without stalling, blocking, and blowback from those electeds themselves. Miami Herald's Joey Fletches, Miami government reporter, and Sarah Blasky, investigative reporter, have been the tip of the spear on some groundbreaking reporting, compiling a lot of it into their recent series, Shakedown City. Josh Ceballos is a government accountability reporter with WLRN, who this week, with colleague Danny Rivero, unspooled how a furniture company owned by the Miami city manager's wife's family outfitted city offices with hundreds of thousands of no bid, no questions, taxpayer funded, chairs, desks, etc. Wow. Um, it's complicated is kind of sometimes a headline there. I'm so happy that you're all here because behind the scenes of what you do, what we do, I think is really important for people to know. Yeah. And in fairness, how and the whys of it. So let me let me start with Shakedown City, which I know you all started working on over the summer. And I know this because I saw the public re records requests go in, some of which have not been filled yet by the city. Sarah, Joey, pick up and run with how you how you even got started on this that this summer after years of Miami drama I would say that it, this started boiling even uh, even before that probably more than a year ago mm. we started probably collecting in 1980 but we I mean, yeah, go back fair that enough far. right <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that you know there was there was scrutiny that was bubbling around city hall on the mayor's travel and that that became a point of um, interest for us and we started collecting records more than a year ago to try to track from the police department because he always takes police officers with him usually we were we were seeing where he was going and that coalesced with an interest that we had in appearances appearances at high-priced events where we wondered how he got there and Sarah really ran with that on the Formula One story in May Right, so this started on Miami's second annual Formula One event, Grand Prix, here in 2023. And we knew that Mayor Suarez had gone in 2022. There were some unanswered questions. Um, mayors and other elected officials, they have to file forms to disclose if someone gives them an expensive gift. Well, Mayor Suarez didn't do that for his 2022 appearance at the Grand Prix, and so there were a lot of questions about that. And then, of course, the Miami New Times did some reporting about the World Cup, and again, Mayor Suarez ends up in Qatar at the World Cup, and no one knows, did he buy this ticket? Why was he in a box with David Beckham, who is, in fact, a registered lobbyist in the city of Miami? And so those were the questions that really prompted a, our closer look. And, and I want to just really make it clear that, you know, he, he says no wrongdoing, okay, but it's really important to know because it's taxpayer money, A, that's being spent, that's why. And number two, elected officials need to be fair to those who elected them and their activities that may not be fair need to be unearthed. And so that's why 
you know, I think a lot of us get blowback from the elected officials themselves, but that's that's our job. And cutting job. through that is incredibly hard because incredibly hard. you've had the experience on this program yourself where you ask the mayor a direct question and you get something else. You get an answer that is not direct. And then what we have to do is really it's public records. So you mentioned the public right. records. It's extremely important that I think people understand that we had to fight with the city. We have to get lawyers involved. It's a costly oh, endeavor. We are fighting. It's not over. We, we are, are fighting. Are fighting. Yeah. And we filed over 150 records requests with the city of Miami last year alone. Um, only about half of them have been fulfilled. And so we've had to get attorneys involved on at least a dozen so far. Some of those are still pending. We're talking outrageous fees, $21,000 quotes. Records that, that belong to the public. That right. is the idea. They, right. are, they are generated um, by public officials, by city right. paid staff with taxpayer dollars, and that makes them the public's record. The public's record. Let me bring Josh into this. Um, your piece with Danny Rivero this week about furniture. Right. Why, why is that important? So. The piece centered on the city manager, Art Noriega, and his uh, his wife has a company, a family company called Pradere Manufacturing. They have several names, but that's the company that gets paid. And Pradere Manufacturing has gotten $440,000 in city contracts since Art became the city manager. And why should we care about that? Why should we care? Because there are ethics rules that talk about uh, city executives and elect elected officials um, their family members not doing business with the city that they work for, the government that they work for, because of the appearance of uh, conflict of interest. So, I, I mean, to Art Noriega's defense, he says he has no involvement in any transactions with his wife's company, even though she did furnish his office to the tune of $37,000. Um, he says he has no involvement in that, but I think when you see something that immediately hits your gut, like, oh, that's strange, that's the kind of things that we need to bring up and question for the public to be able to see because those are their taxpayer dollars. Not only taxpayer dollars, but you know, at ABC Co. Furniture Company, maybe they could have bid that job and, and gotten that business from the city um, and the friends and family plan instead of the friends and family plan, which, which we don't know yet, in fairness. Um, but what do you make of, and I, and I want to hear from all of you on this, mm. what do you make of, to your point, when, when public officials do not answer or when they do answer, it's a non-answer, it's a talking point. And I want to say that's become so prevalent because social media means they can get their own messages out now and who needs the press if they don't want it. But what do you make of the stonewalling and blowback? I mean, as, as far as public, uh, public servants goes. So, you, see, you see what I'm yeah, asking? Yeah, I definitely see what you're asking and I think so I, I've been working professionally uh, as a reporter for about a little over three years. And in those three years from the very beginning, it's like you'll call an elected official and they'll say, I have no reason to talk to you. Why would I talk to you? And I think in so many of those instances, I, I try and tell them, if you talk to me, I can get your side of the story. And I can you know, elucidate this. Like I'm just telling you what I'm seeing from the public records. You get a complete they, story. They get a complete story. I can, and maybe give you, you a fair shake and you will probably be able to explain to me what seems bad but maybe is not wrong. So when you get that blowback, when you get that stonewalling, it only kind of creates a further perception that you have something to hide. And, and it's unfortunate when maybe they don't. Because we've become sort of, I feel like we've become a, not personally, an enemy. And it's, you know, I, I tell some people, if you're a great public official, the press is your best friend. And, and the press is kind of essentially government watchdog, but that doesn't mean government enemy. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't. How did that happen? 
Well, um, you know, there's always going to be, I've, in my experience, and I've been doing this for 10 years here in Miami, there's always going to be somebody in the building, and I say the proverbial city hall, um, who's going to say, wait a minute, that's not right. And, and those folks, they come to us, and they talk to us, and they give us the real truth. Or they at least put some perspective, some context around some of these answers that we get. That, aided with the public records, and then with the third leg, which is, I, which is what I would say is just showing up and being there. We know a lot about that. Just showing up and saying wherever the public official is going to be, whichever the, whatever their agenda might be or their purpose for that appearance might be, we're going to ask the questions that we think are important at the moment. Y you all did that in City Hall, and the mayor came up and said, make an appointment. You know the protocol. Well, that's, that might be his protocol, but do you have protocol? Well, sure, we tried to make that appointment a number of times, and he did not ever schedule the meeting. He had said that to us repeatedly, you know, make an appointment, I'll answer your questions. We emailed once a week, sometimes even more than that, trying to schedule an appointment, and it never happens. So what we what we do is, is what Joey said, you know, we go to public events where the mayor is going to make public appearances, um, and we try to ask our questions then, because the public does deserve answers to these questions questions about who was paying, what their right. interests were, and, and what the mayor is doing. He's a part-time mayor in you know, the rest of his time when he's not at City Hall. I, 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 I wanna, I, we need to take a break, but I, I just want to make mention, in, in fairness, the mayor did come on our program. He has answered some of your questions. He's gone and done interviews with other people, but really has not essentially provided concrete evidence of the answers that you had been asking. So anyway, with that said, quick toss to break. You get first question when we come back. Stay tuned. <laughs> back with South Florida journalist Sarah Blasky and Joey Fletches from the Miami Herald, Josh Ceballos from WLRN, all people who cover Miami in and out. And I want to kind of blow it up in the few minutes we have left. Josh, Miami has been a, a drama story before my all of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Why in, in a city that played, somebody in the back room played the theme from uh, the Godfather yeah. when they were installing their own handpicked police chief. Right. No offense or disrespect to anybody. Where is this culture coming from? Is this like so baked into the DNA that it's so normal that no one realizes it's so not right? It's almost like a curse, like a generational curse. But I think uh, without giving a definitive answer, because I think there's a lot of parts to it, in my eyes, part of the issue in Miami is sort of this, um, you know, you have people in the city commission who have been in city politics for decades, whose families have been in, this, in city politics or Florida politics for decades, or who are connected to families. It's this dynastic thing. So I think when you have all of this entrenchment, this long-time entrenchment, you have people who think, well, I am going to do what I want, or I, I may do things that may not seem so ethical. And they feel that they can because they've been there for so long. And, they're not going to get removed. Kind of an entitlement. It, perhaps thing. it's like you know, it, it's it's people parking on the street in Hialeah, taken up to the emptieth degree. Because who's going to say anything? I've been here forever. <laughs> so um, you know, we we talked during the commercial break. There are five commissioners and the mayor, but five commissioners vote. Two of them are brand new, um, elected just this last cycle, and. For the first time, there's, it's not a majority, but there is a significant number of people changed on that commission. Do you think 
the reporting had anything to do with that. It's possible these uh, two commissioners did run on platforms that included anti-corruption, change at City Hall, more transparency. They've been quick to respond to some of the reporting that we've done right. um, and to make public comments about it, whereas before I think that the MO at City Hall is typically to ignore the press because they're the haters mm -hmm. or they're paid actors, which is a common refrain that makes no sense. But um, yeah, I think that it's potentially a moment where there could be some change that's cementing in City Hall. And it's also it's also buttressed by the fact that um, City Hall is getting a lot of scrutiny from outside agencies. There are multiple investigations happening. Yeah, but because of the reporting. And there's a so, lot of momentum, yeah. for sure. So, Sarah, something he said, um, so there are two new commissioners that voters voted in, but only one in five Miami voters voted them in. The, the turnout was horrible. Do, do people care? Is it is it the lack of attention and care from voters that really lay the groundwork for things to go awry. I think there's a lot of disillusionment amongst voters in Miami who see time and again elected officials who they elect, they think they're going to be different. Mayor Suarez is an example of this. He was elected, uh, you know, people were excited. He was young, he had energy, he had all of these things. And now there are all of these questions, including um, an FBI investigation looking into potential bribery with a local developer. That's very disillusioning. And so voters who have been here. How, how do you know that? How do we know? That there is a, a verified FBI investigation. So we, of course, have sources. Can't tell you more than that. No, on understood. The air. But, but but that is a question. Of course, because I've heard the mayor say I, I've never been talked to by the FBI. Of course, and yeah. it's a legitimate question. And so, so one thing that I will point out is that recently, in the past week, there has been a filing by the SEC against Rishi Kapoor, the developer who did pay Mayor Suarez ten thousand dollars a month, and and. This has always been a joint investigation between the SEC and the FBI, and these investigations were mentioned in that filing, so you do have a public record that has gone into this now. But, but of course, this is based on sources that the Miami Herald has cultivated over time, and um, you know we were able to report from multiple sources at that time in, in June, I believe, right before uh, his run for presidency was announced that, that the FBI had indeed opened this joint investigation with the SEC into these payments and whether or not they constituted bribery. So we're focusing on Miami because you've done or are doing this incredible investigative series and you have this article out today, but um, Miami is this big in the grand scheme of South Florida. Have you, I know you're the Miami government beat reporter. Have you been doing anything else in you mentioned Hialeah. I don't want to pick on any cities. Miami Beach. I, I, I grew up. I grew up in Hialeah, Fort so Lauderdale, I can. I'm allowed. Right? Springs. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's definitely when I started this job as a local government accountability reporter. I thought a lot about wanting to go outside the city of Miami because you're right. City of Miami is small. It is. Um, one of the biggest money drivers for the county. It's one of the major cities the, uh, of the county. It has sort of this outside reputation. Outside yeah. reputation, even though people confuse it with South Beach. But um, I, I do think that it's important to look out at the other, the 34 municipalities out there, Opelaka, Homestead, you know, places that don't always get a lot of attention. But I think the city of Miami is just sort of this um, critical mass of, uh, of issues that make it attractive to look into. Yeah. You know, and, and I think to your point, local reporting, there's not the resources, they're not the people, so there aren't government, local government reporters, and that's we need a big more. problem. We need more. We need more time together, and I hope you'll be back, Sarah Blasky. Joey Fletcher's Josh Shabayos, great to have you for our reporter roundtable. Goes fast, right? Yeah, thank, you for thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Of Bonnie. course, thanks. All right, we'll be right back.
This time next week, we're taking our show on the road. This week in South Florida, we'll be live on the campaign trail for the next two weeks. Next Sunday, January 14th, we're live in Des Moines, Iowa for the caucus as primary season 2024 begins. And from there, Sunday the 23rd, we're live in New Hampshire for the nation's first presidential primary with so much on the line for Florida's governor and the other candidates who are not Donald Trump. As for today's program, you can watch the interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast right on our website. Just scan the QR code right there with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. You know you are a big part of this program. We'd love to hear you weigh in on anything in the news. You can email or connect easily on social media right there at Glenna WPLG. That's on Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, and Instagram. You have a beautiful Sunday. Thanks for being with us this hour, and definitely keep in touch.